Good morning. It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, my name is Dan, and I'm, I want to say, filling in for Pastor Kevin. He gave me the opportunity to preach this morning. He and his family are on their way back from vacation, and I think are going to be here in the next day or two, be back in town. So it's, uh, it is my privilege this morning to, to be here with you and get a chance to uh, just share some truth from um, God's Word this morning. So I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to do that. So um, as we get started, this might seem like a strange way to start a sermon, but if you know me, you'll understand. Um, does anybody know who that is up on the screen? Yeah, I know my family knows. Anybody else besides my family? You too, yes. The only reason there's a picture of you too on the screen as we start this sermon is they are my absolute favorite band in the world. Um, one of the things I love about you two is this group of four guys has been together for this year. It's 40 years. They, they began as a band in 1976. Um, their, their drummer, a guy named Larry Mullen, posted a, a, a little ad on the bulletin board at the school that a couple of them went to. Just said he was looking for some guys to form a band. And, um, you know, the three other guys that are in the band and a couple other people all showed up, kind of had auditions, and they, they started the band there. And the, the core of the band, these four guys, have been together for 40 years. And if you know much about rock music, for a band, the same group of guys to be there for 40 years together and to stick it out through everything that a, you know, a group of people goes through for that long, um, you know, is pretty impressive. It says something about the guys um, that are part of the band. And, you know, there, there really has only been one time in their history um, from the things that I've read and know about them that they really have come close um, to breaking up. And that was in the early 90s. It was right after one of their biggest albums that they ever released was the album called The Joshua Tree and had some of their biggest hits off of it. And as they came together to try and, um, you know, put together the follow-up for that, they, they were in Berlin, Germany. There was a recording studio there, and as they were trying to record this album, they were just struggling because they wanted to kind of come up with a new sound and go in a little bit of a different direction. And it, there was a lot of tension in the band. And they will all say that that was the one time in their history that the band almost um, came apart. And out of that strife and that difficulty in the band almost breaking up, there was a song that came out of that. And it's a song maybe some of you have heard. It was one of, one of, one, another one of their most famous songs called One. And it, it's a song that is kind of funny. It's a song about a band almost breaking up and, and, and working through that. But it's become a song that actually has ended up being played at a lot of weddings um, and things like that, which is kind of funny when it's a song about somebody almost breaking up and you're playing at your wedding. But... Um, one of the lines in the song is, we're one, but we're not the same. And that's kind of our jumping off point, I think, for this morning. Because as a church, that line really describes who we are as a church. And not just us as a church, but I mean the, the church universally. You know, we are one in Christ, but we are all not the same. We are all very different people but it is Jesus Christ and what he has done and who we are in him that, that brings us together and makes us one. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Because we're going to talk about our unity as a church in, in Jesus Christ. And so we're, we're going to continue on in the series on the book of Philippians that uh, Pastor Kevin's 
um, been leading us through. And this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 27 and we're going to go down through chapter 2, uh, verse 11. And, and Pastor Kevin's title for this series is Joy. And so this morning we're going to be talking about the idea of joy in unity. Because one of the things that Paul says in this passage that we're going to see in just a second is that the one thing he says that will make his joy complete is the unity of the people in the church at Philippi. So if you need a Bible, um, if anybody needs a Bible, if you can go ahead and raise your hand. I know we've got some in the back. We can get one of the ushers that could bring one down to you um, if you need that. So, But um, let's go ahead and begin. Um, Philippians chapter 1, begin reading in verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that from that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's start with a word of prayer this morning. Father God, thank you that we can be here this morning as the body of Christ, united in you because of what you have done. And we gather together now to to worship you, to learn what you have to teach us from your word. Father, I pray that you would clearly communicate your truth through the Holy Spirit to the hearts of each one that is here this morning, that this wouldn't just be an exercise in in learning some information, God, that for each one of us, our hearts would be transformed by your word and by your spirit this morning, Father. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So just a little review of just a little bit of the background of what's going on in in the book of Philippians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of believers 
in a town in Greece by the name of Philippi. And so he's writing to the church in, in, in Philippi. That's the, so it's the letter to the Philippians. And if you remember, as Pastor Kevin told us when he was beginning the series, Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell in Rome. He's writing and he's probably chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And he sits down and he writes this letter and, and his future is far from certain. Paul doesn't know if he's going to live or he's going to be you know, released from prison or if they're at some point in the near future if he's going to be executed for, for his belief. He, he doesn't know what, what's going to happen. So he's there and he is suffering for the gospel. And he has heard through someone that's come from Philippi that for whatever reason, and he doesn't state specifically what it is, we'll get into in a little bit what the reason might be, but for whatever reason, the the believers in Philippi in the church there are suffering as well. They're enduring some type of, of persecution. And so Paul wants to encourage them. He wants to communicate to them what they can do to stand together and to endure the, the persecution and the suffering that they are going through. And what, we, what I hope that we see this morning as we look at this passage is that Paul is trying to communicate to the believers at Philippi that the key to them enduring together in the midst of what they're going through is unity. Is that they as a church need to stand together in unity. And that was going to be the one thing that they would draw joy from and it would bring joy to Paul. So the first thing I want us to see is that in the first few verses we're going to look at, Paul's just general appeal for unity in verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul says. So whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. That's the unity. You're standing together with one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And, and he begins that encouragement by saying, live a life worthy of the gospel. Literally, what Paul is saying to them is, you need to behave as citizens of the gospel of Christ. And, and that phrase, behave as citizens, would have struck the people of Philippi in a different way than it probably would have struck most of the other people that would have been living in that time. Because one unique thing about the city of Philippi is that Philippi was what was known as a Roman colony. So, I mean, Philippi, even though it was a small city in Greece, and it was hundreds and hundreds of miles away from the, the capital of Rome in, in what we now know as Italy, Philippi, because of some historical things that had happened there, there had been a great war when, you know, after Caesar Augustus had been killed, um, the, the people that supported Caesar and the, and the, the kind of civil war that happened there, the, the people who had assassinated um, Caesar, they were captured and, and killed in, at the city of Philippi. And so because that significant historical event took place there, Philippi was named a Roman colony, which basically meant that the, the city of Philippi was a Rome in miniature, that the citizens of Philippi were considered full citizens of Rome, that they had all the rights and all the privileges of a Roman citizen. 
that they could have done exactly what Paul did when he, because he was a Roman citizen. The reason Paul is sitting in prison in Rome is because when he was arrested in, in Israel, he did what was called, he appealed to Caesar, which meant that as a Roman citizen, he had the right to have his case heard before Caesar in Rome. And that is how Paul has ended up now in prison in Rome. All the citizens of Philippi would have had that same right. They all spoke Latin. They all dressed the same way that the citizens of Rome would have dressed. They were considered full citizens of Rome with all the rights and and privileges that that, that came along with that. And so because of that, there was a certain way that they were expected to conduct themselves. That they were expected to live. Not like the what would have been viewed by people who were Roman citizens as maybe kind of barbarians and lower class. They were expected to conduct themselves in a certain way. And so Paul is now saying to the people of Philippi, in the same way that as citizens of Rome, you're expected to live in a certain way, you have a higher calling. You are not only citizens of Rome, you are, as followers of Jesus Christ, you are citizens of His kingdom. And so you are to behave, not just as citizens of Rome, you're to behave as citizens of the kingdom of God. And to live and to conduct your lives in that way. And Paul is trying to use that metaphor to to encourage them to live in a certain way. That even though you live here on earth, you are supposed to live like you are in the kingdom of heaven. You know, in, in my church that I pastored in, in Portland a few years ago, I spent some time going through the book of Matthew. And one of the things that Jesus says continually in the book of Matthew is he talks about the kingdom of heaven and how we are part of the kingdom of heaven. And though the kingdom of heaven is not fully here on earth now, and it will be one day, in each of us, the kingdom of heaven is here now. And we're to live as part of the kingdom of heaven. And we're to live out the, the values and the principles and the truths of the kingdom of heaven in our lives each and every day. So being a part of the kingdom of heaven, being citizens of that kingdom, not just for Philippi, but for us today, should change how we live, should change how we make decisions, should impact every decision that we make. We should make our decisions and live our lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as we do that together as the body of Christ, that is how the church impacts the world. And that is how God changes the world through what He does through the church. That's how God has called us to live. To be a part of His plan to bring up there, down here, into the practical every day of our lives. So that's how Paul begins his appeal for unity. To live your life worthy of the gospel. To live your life as a citizen of heaven. And how were they to do that? They were to do that together in unity. To stand firm in the face of what they were facing. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospels, whether I come or an absent or I see you, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. That they are standing together in unity. In the face of whatever they were facing, 
that unity, that being together, that being one as citizens was going to bind them and they would stand together and they would stand side by side for the gospel. And because of that, they wouldn't be frightened. They wouldn't back down. They wouldn't shirk when they were faced with whatever opposition it was that they were facing there. So what was it? I said we'd talk a little bit about maybe speculating what that opposition might have been. Well, if we kind of continue on from the idea that we know Philippi was that Roman colony. Okay, as a Roman colony, the religion, I guess for lack of a better word, that was the, the universal religion of the Roman Empire was the, the, the religion of emperor worship. That was one of, one of the things that defined Rome as, as, a, um, as a nation was they believed that whoever it was that was the Caesar at that time was divine. And they were expected to refer to him by these divine titles, to call him Lord, Savior, the the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Those were all titles that the Romans were to use in their worship of the emperor. And so that would have been one thing that would have been a part of the city of Philippi as that Roman colony, a Rome in miniature, emperor worship would have been a huge part of the culture, the city in that day. And any public gathering would have begun with the public declaration by it would have been expected of everyone in attendance that Caesar is Lord. And obviously, for the Christians, that would have been a huge problem. Because they know that there is only one who is Savior, and there is only one who is Lord. There's only one who is the King of Kings, and that's Jesus Christ. And so to refer to anybody else by those terms would have been blasphemous. And so as they would stand together and they would refuse to acknowledge that and refuse that kind of worship, it would have made them stand out in the midst of the town. And it would have subjected them to persecution and ridicule and potentially you know, other types of, of suffering that they could have gone through. And eventually, if, as you study Roman history, you would know that there were other emperors that were to come that would take it even further. And that... You know, just to, to not bow down to Caesar if he passed through your town could have been, you know, cause for an imminent, you know, execution right there. So those were the types of opposition probably that Paul was referring to. And he knew that for the church in Philippi, as they stood together in the face of that, they would be better able to do it if they did it united, if they did it as one. And they could support and they could encourage and and lift each other up. And so Paul encourages them that a life that is worthy of the gospel is a life of unity. A life that's worthy of the gospel is a life of unity. And Paul wants them to stand together as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so then in chapter 2, Paul goes on, And he tries to explain and define and say, so this is what I want from you. I want you to be one. I want you to be united. 
And chapter 2, Paul begins by saying, this is what your unity is based on. The basis for our unity. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort and love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul gives us a number of things that our unity in Christ is built on. And Paul is saying these are indisputable facts. These aren't things that can be debated. These are things that without a doubt we share. They're not maybes. They are reminders of all that God has done for us. That word if at the beginning, it's not you know, a question of here are things that may or may not be true. It doesn't imply any kind of uncertainty. Paul's stating these are facts. These are things that are, without a doubt, true for all believers. So the first thing that we share together as all believers is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. Each one of us has received, as a follower of Christ, we've received encouragement from Him. He comes alongside us. He gives us courage. He gives us strength. He gives us confidence. He gives us hope when we go through hard times, when we go through difficulties. And when as a body of Christ, when we go through these things together, we share that encouragement from Christ together and it gives us a bond, a unity that that we may not have otherwise. Um, a number of years ago, I was um, working with um, a youth group down in California. I was a youth pastor there for about six years. And while we were there, every year during spring break, we would go uh, to Mexico. And we would work with a group called the Moore Ministries. And we would go and we would build a house. Um, usually it was a house for a, a poor family there. One time we went and we built a school, um, some other kinds of things. But you would go there and it would be... It would be a pretty intense period because you would be there and you'd be on the work site working for basically, typically four days. You know, and you'd lay the foundation, you'd frame the building one day. First day, you'd lay the foundation. Next day, you'd frame it. Um, the third day, you'd, you know, put, you'd wrap the building and then you'd start putting the stucco on. And then the last day would be about a half day where you'd put the second coat of stucco on, dedicate the building and, and give it to the family and do all those kind of finishing touches. Well, in the six years that I went... I don't think any one of those six trips went the way you would plan it. I mean, because these kind of trips, you're, you're planning them for like six months. And you, you, you hope to have every detail planned out and, you know, work out for every eventuality. Well, you know, the, the first, probably the first, I think, three years that we went, during the time that we were there, there would be just these torrential storms that, that would come through the area. Um, that we were that we were in, and we we'd have to, I think at least two out of those three times, maybe all three, we had to basically evacuate our camp and pull out because it was raining and blowing so hard we couldn't we couldn't even stay at the campsite where we were camping in Mexico, and so we'd have to pack up as much as we could that was still dry, load everybody into a bus, drive back across the border, find a hotel in San Diego, put up you know thirty to fifty you know, kids and, and adults that are there in, in this hotel and, and then find ways in the hotel to keep those 30 to 50 kids occupied and out of trouble, and, which isn't always easy with high schoolers. And, 
you know, and then, and then that means we're probably losing a day of work in there. So now you got to build a project that's going to take you four days in three. And it was just, you know, and all these kinds of things. Um, there was one year we went and on our way down, our bus broke down less than 100 miles from Sacramento where we were. And so we were sitting on the side of the road and we had to call back to our church and they started this phone chain and they got, you know, I think 10 families in the church to loan us their their SUVs and all their different vehicles that we could take instead of taking our bus. And we had to leave our bus on the side of the road and, you know, have to get it repaired. And it's just every year there was some kind of difficulty and hardship that that we went through and that we endured. But the thing that I realized coming through all of that is as we went through all those things together as a group, when we came back, the, the unity and the closeness, the bond that we shared as a, as a, as a group of, of believers who had been through those things together was, it, it was just, it was markedly different than, than what it was before we left. Because we had endured that suffering and that hardship and those trials together. And Christ, through all of it, had encouraged us. Every, every time at the end of those trips, we'd have this meeting together. And, and we'd just give people a chance to talk about what God had done in their lives and what they'd learned. And it was amazing to hear the stories of how God changed people's lives. And so many of the people that I went on those trips with are still today you know, some of my best friends and people that I'm still in touch with. So, so we share that. We share that encouragement in Christ. And as we as a church go through various trials and struggles and difficulties together, we share that encouragement in Christ that brings us together and brings us closer together. The second thing Paul share, says that we share is we share comfort from love. Not only is Christ our encourager, He gives us hope and He gives us confidence, but also in the middle of those difficulties that we endure and that the church at Philippi was enduring, Christ comes alongside and He comforts us. He gives us the comfort that we need. And He does that in many ways. He can do it through, you know, as we read His Word. We, he, he does it sometimes through, through, through worship and through song. Sometimes it's through other um, believers, through our brothers and sisters in Christ. But He gives us the comfort in love. Um, you know, the, right now I'm in the midst of, you know, continuing to, to look for whatever, you know, God has in store for, for the future. I'm, you know, working a job right now that may not be the favorite thing I've done in the world, but it's what God's given me to do right now in, in the midst of, you know, trying to find the next, hopefully, you know, ministry position that he might have for me in the future. But, you know, in the midst of some of my most discouraging days, one of the things that I'll do is I, I've got a CD player in the truck that I, that I drive every day and just popping in a, a CD that has, you know, so, some worship songs and stuff sometimes is the only thing that provides that encouragement and that comfort that I need to be reminded of the truths that are here in God's Word of Christ and, and who He is and what He's done for us. So He gives us that encouragement in Christ and comfort in His love. And He also says we share then the third thing is the participation in the Spirit. And the word He used there for participation is, is a word that was used commonly in the Roman culture for something that was shared by everyone. 
It was shared by all. So it was, it was a word that was used in, in joint business partnerships. It was a word that was used in marriage contracts. It was a word that would have been used in any relationship where people would share something in common, share something together. And in the Christian community, in the church, it was a word that was used for everything that believers share in common. Our, our relationship together in Christ, the, the, the encouragement, what we learn from, the, the, the Word of God, um, prayer, the, the Lord's Supper, the material gifts that we have. There is, as you read, especially in the book of Acts, about the early church, that was one thing that they did. There were people who had nothing, those believers who had much, they would give much, in some cases, almost everything that they owned to the church so that the church could then distribute it and to share that with other believers in the body of Christ who were in need. And so here Paul is reminding the believers in Philippi that one of the things that they share together in common is the Holy Spirit. They are all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit and it's something else they share together. And that fellowship of the Spirit is a reality. It's not just some nice idea. And so each and every believer has a personal fellowship with the Spirit in their own private life. But then we also share that together in common, and we are united by that. And so the practical application of that is that if we all are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, that divisions and factions should have no place in the body of Christ. If we all participate in the same Spirit, if there's any division in our body, that by very nature would be something that grieves the Holy Spirit. Any division, any arguments between believers that, that separate us grieve the Holy Spirit. And we should do all that we can, all that's within our power to make those things right. And this idea of the importance of unity in the body, it's, it's no small or trivial thing to the Apostle Paul. I mean, just in the passage we're looking at this morning, he's emphasized it twice in five verses. All that we share together and the importance of our unity. But it's not just twice in these five verses. There's at least three other books that Paul writes where the idea of unity is, is a major thing. Because Paul understood how important it was for, for the early church. Let me just give you briefly a couple other examples. The first one's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul is writing about communion. He's trying to introduce the idea of communion to the church at Corinth. But listen to the verses that precede and come after what Paul says about communion. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you. So Paul's saying, I'm not happy with what I'm seeing here. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there, there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One gets hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? 
No, I will not. And then in verse 23 through 26, Paul gives his instructions for the Lord's Supper. And I'm not going to go into all that. But the idea is in the church at Corinth, there were divisions. And when they came together to celebrate communion as a body, they were divided because there was a group of the wealthy people who were coming and they were getting there early and they were, they were eating their own meal before communion. And then the, those who were poorer in the church who had to work all day, when they would come in later, the, the richer folk had already eaten this full meal and they were full and they'd had all they had and there was nothing left for those who were poor. And so there was that division within the church body. And look at what Paul says then after his instructions for communion. Go down to verse 27. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. When Paul talks about discerning the body, and he talks about profaning the body and blood of the Lord, part of what he's talking about is discerning what's going on in the body of Christ. And he's saying, examine yourselves and look at if you have any part in the divisions that are being caused in the body. And if you do, before you come and you take communion, you need to make those divisions right. We need to do whatever you can to bring unity in the body before you come together and you celebrate communion. And also you can flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. It's another place where Paul emphasizes the unity of the body. Ephesians 4, um, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then listen to all the things that Paul talks about that bind us together in unity. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All of those things that we share together as the body of Christ. And he goes on in verse 2 of, of Philippians. He talks about that we share the same mind, the same love. We need to live in full accord. We need to live working together as one and with one mind. So then how do we go about living this out? How do we live this out as the body of Christ? That's what the rest of the passage talks about. How do we live it out? How do we live out this practice of unity? And that's what Paul teaches us in verses 3 through 11, where he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says that unity has to start out as we recognize what we share together in Christ, what binds us together. But on the practical side, how do we live in unity? Well, you know, history is filled with examples of how the church has failed in that. Of people who were shared much in common and should have been united, but have been torn apart um, by divisiveness. I mean, just look at church history. Church splits and, and factions and, and divisions. The, the huge number of denominations that we have today in the world. I mean, it just shows us that, that this kind of division, I think, is one of Satan's greatest tools to diminish what Christ wants the church to do. I mean, let me just give you an example. Um, there's a picture that's going to be coming up here of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, is, it's the traditional site in the city of Jerusalem of the, the burial of Christ. Um, and yeah, if, if you're interested, I have, I have a really interesting story of the time that I was actually able to go and visit there. But I'm not, we don't have time to get into that now. But I want, I want to share another story um, about something that happened at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, and it happened in July of 2002 when the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is supposed to be one of these holy sites in the city of Jerusalem, and the Church of the Holy Sepulchre became the scene of an, an ugly fight between a couple groups of monks that are supposed to be charged with, with, with running um, this church. You see, there, there, there's, two, there, there's, there's six different groups of monks that... that, that that, that run the church. And two of them are the Ethiopian monks and the Coptic monks. And apparently, the Ethiopian monks and the Coptic monks had been arguing for, for years and years over the, the rooftop. Who's in charge of running the rooftop of the church? There's a flat area on the roof of the church. And that, that's the area that they're arguing over. Um, clear back in 1752, um, during the, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Sultan... Um, he issued an edict which declared there, there's these different parts of the church and each of you, six different groups, here's the part of the church that you are charged with, with, with caring for. And so at that time, the, the edict from the, the Ottoman sultan declared that the, the Ethiopian eunuchs were in charge of, of the roof uh, of the church. But in the late 1800s, the Ethiopian um, monks, there was a, an epidemic of disease that hit them. And so because of that, and because of getting sick, they had to abandon their post on, on the, the, the rooftop of the church. And so during that time when the Ethiopians weren't there because they were sick, the Coptic monks came and they established their claim um, to, to the roof of the church. And they began to, to, to sit there and, and control it. And then in 1970, the Ethiopians regained control of the roof when the Coptic monks were absent for a short period. And so since 1970, 
the Ethiopian monks had basically been squatting on the roof. They always had at least one monk present there to you know, establish their claim as being the ones who, who ruled over that part or were in charge of that part. Well, the Coptic monks didn't want to you know, concede that, and so they had somebody sitting up there too. So you have one Ethiopian monk at all times sitting on the roof, and you had one Coptic monk at all times sitting on the roof. Well, in 2002, in July, it was a hot summer in Israel. And as you can imagine, on the roof of the church, probably not a lot of shade. And so the Ethiopian monk had his chair in the shade, and the Coptic monk started getting hot. So he picked his chair up and he moved it over into the same area of shade where the Ethiopian monk was sitting. And the two began to exchange some harsh words, and things escalated from there. And eventually it went into, there was some pushing and some shoving. And then, believe it or not, that led to this all-out brawl between these two groups of monks on the roof of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. That ended with 11 monks being injured, including one who had to be taken to the hospital unconscious. And that's just, that, that's kind of an extreme example of divisions in the church. But... Trust me, I've sat in business meetings in churches where that doesn't seem all that extreme. You know, I mean, and you, some of you probably have too. And it should not be that way. We should be united in Christ. So what is it that allows us to be united in Christ? How do we combat the division and the factions that Satan wants to bring in to the church and work towards unity? Paul sums it up with one word. And that word in verse 3 is humility. It says, don't act selfishly. Don't be conceited. But live with humility. Put others first. If we do that, if we live with humility, if we put others first, imagine how many of these divisions and factions and those things are going to go away. And, you know, I think a lot of times the idea of humility gets a bad rap because we think of it as somebody being weak or, or, or soft or somebody that's a pushover, somebody who doesn't have any, any spine. Or, or maybe it's the idea of somebody who has false modesty, you know, and they're pretending to be humble, but we really know that it's, you know, just a cover for, for pride or something like that. But the truth is what humility really is is when we have a proper view of, of ourselves and who we are in Christ. Because when we realize who we are in Christ, we realize that it's not about us, it's not about how great we are, it's about God and Jesus Christ and how great He is and what He has done through us. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is, is laying out what it means to really be His followers, where does He begin? The first step in becoming a follower of Christ is to realize that we are poor in spirit. To realize that apart from Jesus Christ, we can't do anything. In fact, in John 15, Jesus says exact, exactly that. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And humility is when we realize that. When we realize that whatever God allows us to do for Him... It's not because of how awesome and how great we are, but it's because it's Him working through us. It's not our greatness. 
It's His. And it's recognizing that we are, we need to be poor in spirit and be yielded and surrendered to Him and allowing Him to fill us with His power and with His strength and to work through us and to do that. And it's only through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that we, that, that can happen and we can do anything. So rather than focusing on ourselves and lifting ourselves up, we put our focus on Christ and we lift Him up and we lift others up. And we don't look out for ourselves and our own interests. But Paul says we look out for others and for their interests. Because when we do that, that is when we are following the example of Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 11, Paul lays out the ultimate example of humility. Where Jesus left heaven, came to earth, gave his life for us on the cross. That's the ultimate example of humility. And if we could all have that humility that Christ demonstrated when he came to earth, And He went to the cross for us. If we could just put others before ourselves like Jesus Christ did, imagine the unity that that would demonstrate to the world and the impact that that would have. And honestly, it's not a coincidence that Paul uses this example of Jesus Christ and how His life here on earth ended when He gave it up on the cross before He was resurrected three days later as the ultimate example of unity. You know, if you go in your Bibles, just one last thing really quickly as we close. John chapter 17. This is Jesus Christ the night before He is to be crucified. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and He is praying about what's to come. You know, and this is part of His prayer where He says, you know, Father, if it's Your will, let this cup pass. But not My will, but Yours. I'm not what's important. I want to do what you want and I'm willing to give my life for the church. And in the midst of that prayer, you know one of the things that Jesus Christ does, this floors me every time I think about it. Do you realize that Jesus Christ, the night before He died, took time to pray for you? He took time to pray for me. He prayed for all of us we're going to be part of the church. We're going to be His followers. Look at verses 20 through 23. Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only. That's referring to His disciples. He's just finished praying for His disciples. He says, I don't pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. That's us. He's praying for the church that's going to come. That He knows those who are going to believe in Him because of what the disciples have to say. And listen to what He prays for us. I pray that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I am in You, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. The glory that You have given Me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and You in Me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved me. Christ prayed 
for our unity. That we would be one. And it's because of our unity. This is what Jesus is saying. Because of our unity, that's going to be the thing that is going to demonstrate to the world that God sent Jesus Christ and how much He loves them. He prayed that our unity would be a witness and a testimony of Jesus to the world. So if we are going to be the kind of followers of Jesus, the kind of followers of Christ that Jesus desires us to be, and that God intends us to be, then we need to take that prayer that Jesus prayed to heart. Because when we do all that we can to work for the unity of the body of Christ, do you realize that you are a part of answering Christ's prayer that night? We need to make every effort to protect the unity of the church because when we do that, we're the answer to His prayer. And so we do that by acting in love, by being people who are humble and who put the needs of others above ourselves. We do it when we refuse to gossip. We do it when we submit to the leadership of our church. And we do it when we make every effort that we can to settle whatever differences we have with other believers and to do it quickly. So that's my encouragement to you. Be a part of answering Jesus' prayer by doing everything that you can to promote the unity of this body of Christ right here. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the words and the encouragement that we have from the Apostle Paul. I pray, Father, that Restoration Church would be a church that is known for being unified, that we would be a people that are one because of all that we share in Christ. Father God, may you use us in the unity and the oneness that you are building and you are developing here because of all that we share to be that witness that Christ talked about, that because of that, the world may know, the city of Yakima may know, all of our neighbors and our friends who don't know Christ would see an uncommon unity here. A group of people who are united, who are one, who share a common God, a common purpose, a common mission, a common love common spirit and that that would be a light that would draw people to you that we might see people come to know you and follow you and serve you and become part of this body and that unity may grow Father in Jesus name